Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sands Pants Radio. I am too cold. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to another episode of Movie Maintenance. I'm Gabe. I'm Handsome Tom. I'm Carney. And today we're discussing the evolution of the blockbuster. The video rental franchise, obviously. Uh, oh, that would make a great episode. That would. There, do you know there's still one in my hometown? That is amazing and I want to go there. Now, it was there at least a, like six months ago, I want to say, and it's it used to be in a bigger building across the road that is now a cycling shop, but obviously with Blockbuster going into receivership, it has now moved across the road. It shares a block with a subway. Wait, so Blockbuster yeah. it survived and they moved building. To a small boutique. When you go back to Geelong, do you go there sometimes? Um, and is it weird to be in there? Do you know, I, I, I haven't d- been in one for I years. don't. I don't go in there purely out of fear because I had so many overdue fines from the old blockbuster that I'm just worried <laughs> I'll walk in and an alarm will go off and I won't be able to leave. Um, so I haven't. I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to. There's a, there's, the video rental places still exist. But Blockbuster just, specifically is... This is a block... My, my only thing is potentially it's owned by like... Larry from Grovedale, and he's <laughs> he's just put he's just kept the Blockbuster logo on the shop. There's still a video store in my hometown, and I always every time I go home, I'm like, oh, I really just want to go in there and like browse the shelves for nostalgia's sake and all of that. I just never do. Like, I love I would love to. I miss I miss like going to the video store and everything, but oh, I just it's laziness. It's yeah nowadays. It's, it's like just you've got Netflix, Netflix and yeah. and. Netflix, that's the only one could I you use. Imagine, could you imagine like video store and chill? Hey, do you want to go to my place in the video store? So you don't actually watch the movie, just walk around the video store holding hands for a bit? So um, Blockbuster <laughs> is in the type of film that we are discussing. Um, so I, I guess like the best way to start off here before we sort of launch into this is what defines a Blockbuster? The first thing that comes to mind is budget, I think. Yeah, because like 
Like, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the fact that Jaws was kind of the first blockbuster, but then I've always sort not of a lot of budget. Things like not, not was really. Was it though? And, like by you know back in the seventies, was that yeah? But there'd been a lot of much bigger films. I mean, even like going back as far as the thirties, like you know King Kong, A Gone with the Winds, yeah. yeah. Wizard of Oz, so, uh, Casablanca, Ben Hur. And, what and I think budget is, doesn't always play into it either because you have big tentpole films that are actually made for surprisingly. Yeah, I think Cheap. I think it's a number of factors. It's the studio involvement. It's the stars that are attached to it. It's the the marketing. I guess it's with Jaws. It wasn't so much the production budget, but it was the fact that it was the first film that sort of had a major release where they dumped it in like a whole bunch of cinemas, which is common practice today. It. Yeah, and also because apparently prior to Jaws releasing something during summer wasn't really a thing. Yeah, but then I don't know. Even that, like they say, oh, Jaws was such an event you had to go see Jaws. I'm like, yeah, but here's stories about like Psycho coming out in the '60s and people lining up around the block to see Psycho and stuff like no, that. But I so. think I think they used. To to roll films out a lot slower. Um, and yeah. that, that was the thing with mouth, Psycho. They had to put signs up in Psycho at every cinema, don't spoil the ending because it yep. wasn't in every cinema. Whereas Jaws, they literally just went, put it in all of them. Yeah. But, but I think, was that part of, because they went way over budget and they were kind of just like, let's just dump it in as many as we can because they were just scared to roll it out slowly. <laughs> they thought perhaps word of mouth might kill it. So they were like, let's just get it out there. And then people saw it and loved it. And then it sort it's, of became- can I Maybe, say, I don't know specifically. But. I watched it recently. That movie holds up oh, yeah. so oh, it's, well. Yeah. It's my favorite movie. And that, that's something we'll get into a bit later is sort of, I guess, um, the difference between a blockbuster like Jaws that kind of, I guess, defined the concept and then blockbusters like what we have today with like Marvel films and whatever. But yeah, fuck, Jaws really does hold up beautifully. So I think, is there a lot? Like, let's say, let, let's settle on some criteria here. Yeah. So is there, what, four things that it has to do? So it's either, let's, let's call it like a big budget or, or big production mm-hmm. in terms of like it's it's seen as a big kind of thing. <laughs> you know, director, <laughs> producer. The other thing I think that's kind of important is being relatively high concepts. Yeah is probably pretty key. I mean, if you think about most of the blockbusters, even the nowadays ones, it's like superhero films and then going back to things like Jaws, like Star Wars, they're things that you can kind of summarize in one attention-grabby sentence. Yep, and I think it's the release date too. Yes. It's the American summer. Yes, but But that's only because of Jaws. Blockbusters sort of later and earlier as well. And see, this is the thing is that I I don't necessarily think it's the release date. I think it's it's films that – they get released like in a couple of cinemas or they go to Sundance and then they get a release. Yeah. Often, um, particularly in Australia, we suffer from that thing where we'll get a, an American film much later. But that's typically not the blockbusters. No, that's what I mean. So the blockbusters yeah. kind of worldwide, everyone kind of gets it at once and a lot of people go and see it. There also, go, by yeah, that logic, yeah. something like, you know, Lord of the Rings or even Star Wars, which was released in December, wouldn't be a blockbuster. No, yeah, okay. But I think that that's the the evolution of the blockbuster because I think I can't really think prior to Lord of the Rings what was coming out on like Boxing Day or whatever but when Lord of the Rings started doing that and was massively successful now that's a market Pixar used to monopolize the Boxing Day slot they like Monsters Inc Finding Nemo there, that was go. their kind of go-to slot was always the, the Boxing Day no but that was one after Fellowship of the Ring for instance <laughs> I don't know look <laughs> I'm not to shoot you down there mate <laughs> I'm not a not a not a mega expert on my Pixar release dates, so I guess like the the kind of it's main- my jam, Gabe. Well, if clearly not because you just got it wrong. So. <laughs> no, <they're, laughs> moving they, on. They definitely anyway. I'm not saying they didn't, but they they. Sorry. <laughs> so I guess if we look at like. Coming back to, I think actually that's sort of a really good springboard to launch into this is what you said before about Jaws. Like the fact that Jaws holds up, the fact that Jaws, aside from being a high concept, entertaining blockbuster, also is just a really, really good film. It's idiosyncratic in interesting ways. It's got great characters. It's got great dialogue. It's very memorable. It holds up kind of on all those levels because it's just made so well. And it not only doesn't diminish on repeat viewings, but rewards repeat viewings yeah whereas if you look at the blockbuster we get nowadays like most of the marvel films i find their events you go and see them everyone's like oh have you seen the new iron man have you seen the new thor have you seen the new avengers whatever but how many of those are you itching to go and re-watch again and again are you so- suggesting that the evolution of the blockbuster is that over time they become more about the studio production side of it and less about well, i kind of think that's unquestionably what, the way what, we've got or do they just get shitter I, put mean, it I don't know. I, I think part of it's the fact that, you know, obviously China's become such a big market. And so like a lot of these blockbusters are being made to kind of appeal for foreign audiences so that they can very easily get put in a different language and nothing kind of gets lost in translation. That's one part of it. I mean, nowadays it's the proliferation of sequels and things like that. It's relatively rare to get, the unless you're Christopher Nolan, to get like a big budget blockbuster film that's a total original. It's not based on a well-known intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Universe, obviously a big thing, but I guess- Going from Jaws and Star Wars in the 70s and the heydays of films like that, like Spielberg's heyday in the 80s, you know, Indiana Jones's, your ETs, all of those things are unquestionably blockbusters. James Cameron in the 80s, 
as well with yep. sort of the aliens and your Terminators, Terminators. Aliens, things like that. And then coming through to the way it is today, I, I, I think one of the biggest differences is saturation. Like it feels to me like those big sequels were more of the exception than the rule back then. Like, I mean, how long was it between Terminator 1 and Terminator 2? I think it's like, like it's, it's eight years or something. something yeah, it was pretty a extensive. It's, it's and, 80 whatever for Terminator and it's like 90... One or 92 for Terminator 2, I yeah. think. I think it's 84 There's for Terminator a big gap, 1. Whereas today, that would be like a two-year gap. That yeah. would be unquestionable or, today. Or, yeah. or it'll either be a two-year gap or a 20-year gap. Yeah. And they do the weird, oh, the sequel that nobody was kind of waiting for, but here it is anywhere, guys. Like a Tron or something like that. Well, it's for like a Tron. But, but That's a different thing. That's like a nostalgia-based sequel. <laughs> is it? And, and like you still even have to this day stories where films are going to have a release on, say, like March 3rd, and then they find out, like, the new Transformers is coming out March 3rd as well, so they'll either button themselves a week earlier or a week later. Yeah. Or they're like, no, nah, we're going to go head-to-head with the new Spider-Man. Like, you you kind of hear those stories, but you hear them less and less. Studios are just like, no, nah, bring it on. Coming up soon, we get a Spider-Man, we get Transformers, all within, like, a week of well, one another. There was That's also insane. that... Um, that- Interesting thing that happened last year where Civil War and Batman vs. Superman were like a week scheduled apart. for the same week or something. And for a long time they stuck to that. And they did and eventually DC blinked because someone had to blink. They went earlier too, didn't they? They went earlier, yeah. yeah. They stuffed up. Yeah. There's something that occurred to me today when I was kind of like doing, I guess like, you know, doing the groundwork for this episode. Because to me, I would argue the point at which things changed, because for a long time sequels were kind of like we said before, sort of more the exception, the rule, and we were kind of getting quite a few more original films and things like that. I would actually argue the point at which things really, really changed was 2007. Because I remember very clearly in 2007, there was this whole big thing, all the film blogs and magazines, everything were talking about it, which was that we just had unprecedented amount of blockbusters coming out in a very, very, in very, very close succession with each other. Great year for film too, if you go back and look at it. Well, yeah, but I mean, the films we had at the time. Okay, so we had within weeks of each other, we had Spider-Man 3, Pirates of the Caribbean 3, Shrek 3, Born uh, Ultimatum, Transformers, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and the Simpsons movie. Like, it was just kind of one after another that year. And I remember at the time, there was like a big poster- there was a post that was everywhere at Hoyts and it was like the winter blockbuster because, you know, America's summer is our winter. Yep. And it was like a poster of like the 10 must-see films. And it was like those plus, I guess, a couple of other ones that I've sort of forgotten about. But I, I do remember thinking, holy crap, there are so many sequels to so many big films coming out. And then after that, I mean, one year later, you know, we had Iron Man coming out in 2008, which kicked off the Marvel Cinematic Dark Universe. Knight. And then I think there was this point where I remember um, a few websites talking about 2012 as being like the huge year for film because we had the Avengers coming out and we had the Dark Knight Rises coming out and we had like all these kind of big significant films coming out and everyone was like, oh shit, you know, it's unprecedented that we're going to have this big big of a year for like huge blockbusters. Then they were like, oh, 2015 is the next one because we have The Force Awakens, we have The Avengers Age of Ultron and a bunch of other ones. And now it's kind of par for the course. It's like yeah, every it's just year common we have those now, yeah. enormous tent poles. When you when you were younger, yeah, when you were younger, it was like you'd look at the release <clears> schedule for that year and be like, man, there's heaps of good mo- like big movies coming. Yeah, out. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just every every week now, and that's it. Like you know, and the biggest thing I've noticed, I think, from a personal standpoint, is going back to 2012. Like I remember, you know, and I'm not a I'm not I don't really have a background of being a comics fan, but I remember when the first Avengers came out, I was so excited. I was unprecedented I was like, though. It getting was, it had never been done before. Making a film about a group of characters from other like. Again, these days it's you know part of the, part of the cause we're saying, but this is the first time someone attempted, and that's stupidly ambitious. And it was enormous, yeah. and then like let's the create blockbusters you know, to create a blockbuster. This one argument I've kind of made about Star Wars for a while is that if you go back to when the prequels are coming out in the early two thousands, they were events. They were so yeah. big because I mean, not only you know was there that enormous gap before Phantom Menace came out, then it was like three years between films. And I remember when Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith came out, they were huge. It was all anybody was talking about. I was so excited to go see the new Star Wars film. It was such an event. There was this sense at the time, which obviously proved wildly misguided, that Revenge of the Sith was going to be the last time we got to go to this universe. And now it's like, you fast forward to this day, and it's like, you know, another Marvel film's coming out soon. There's another, another Star Wars film at the end of the year. And I just don't feel that excited because- I'm still just- pumped for Star Wars. Yeah, me films. too. Because um, they're a year apart, yeah. whereas Marvel, they do like three a year. But I'm isn't pumped. that the I'm biggest difference though? Yeah. One year apart as opposed to three years apart. As opposed to three years apart and then that's going to be the end of it. I mean, is anybody realistically thinking that episode nine is going to be like oh, the end of not. that new Star no. no way. They'll see, in, but in my head though, already, as time's gone on, Consumers and audiences are getting quicker and quicker and need stuff on a more constant basis. It's it's just the way the world like the world works. We expect things 
quicker. Yep. So isn't it weird that we kind of go, oh no, Star Wars is okay because we only get one a year, whereas Marvel films we get like two. DC you get two or three a year. And that's too much. So imagine when we get to a point where, you know, however many years from now we're like, oh no, those guys are okay because they only give us three a year instead of eight. <laughs> like- well, I, I think I think this kind of, this bubble has to burst before that happens. We would have thought because though that it would have happened a long time ago. I would have thought the bubble burst after BVS, but apparently not. Well, no, because then Marvel did Civil War, and suddenly it was like, "Oh, that was actually all right." And do you know what? Do you know what it is? Every time we think the bubble's going to burst, we get like Spider-Man: Homecoming comes along, and you go, "Oh, this could actually be pretty good." Yep. Wonder Woman comes along, and you go, "Oh, the DC universe, film universe, got something kind of right this time." Yeah. So every time they give you a Doctor Strange or a BVS or an Ant Man, they then give you another one, and you go, "Oh, I know. You know, I'm back on board." They keep you hanging in there. It's it's like you know you get the Winter Soldier after you get you know Ant Man and Avengers two, two and, and you get like and all, yeah and then all of a sudden like you, you know we have a, we had a run of kind of mediocre ones and we get Civil War again that looks awesome and then we've got Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther coming out and they both look pretty rad yeah it's almost like there's more than one blockbuster released yeah. it's not like a peer so that they're happy to release like five blockbusters and they kind of grade them so you have like your blockbuster blockbuster which is Civil War and you have Doctor Strange which is a blockbuster you know yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's inter- Marvel's interesting because they planned out till about what twenty twenty something, something like that, and like that's so, just what they've announced. So on paper, like behind closed doors, they're even more planned out. At a certain point, this is going to burst, and I'm just kind of fascinated to see what happens because at a certain point, people are going to be like, "I don't want this anymore." Okay, so here's here's a notion to throw out there. If you look at the precinct with superhero films, if you zoom back to like, okay, Tim Burton's Batman films, let's say. Okay. Christopher Reeve Superman films, let's say. Uh, the Superman films were a bit different because they were sort of filmed back to back and it was- And Donna had a vision. Films, you know, there were four Batman films ostensibly in the same series, including the two Joel Schumacher ones. And they're all essentially standalone films. And they're, they're very like, different tonally, with the exception of the, the first two by Burton. And apart from the fact that they share a Batman, they don't actually- You don't need to have seen Batman to see Batman Returns. No. You know? Not at all. Um, and so- I, I quite like that too. Yeah, because I don't like watching. I don't like the original Batman, but I really enjoy Batman Returns. Yeah, and that's kind of a difference now, isn't it? Where like you know, you to see Civil War, you sort of have to have seen. Like I remember when um when my dad saw Civil War, and I thought Civil War was great, and I told Dad to go and see it, and Dad doesn't really like the Avengers or or the Marvel films or any of that, and he was like, he had my dad actually quite enjoyed Batman vs Superman, but he came back to me with Civil War, and he was like, oh son, this was the worst film I've ever. It was so bad. It was just made no sense. Didn't understand it at all. And I'm like. Well, and I was arguing it with him. And then he was like, and why was Spider-Man there? And why was Ant-Man there? What was this? And what, And why was Tony Stark? Why did Captain America try to smash Tony Stark's heart? Then I was like, oh, well, the last one you saw. And I was like, oh, because in Iron Man 3, he got that taken out. And now he's got like a... And I was like, holy shit, this film expects yeah. you to have seen yeah. so much. And then he was like, and who was this character? And I was like, oh, well, in Avengers Age of Ultron. And then in this, but it's like to a certain generation of cinema goers, like these are all different franchises. It's like, a TV series. That you've, and that's it. That's what I was going to say. Is there an argument to be made that binge watching shows like Breaking Bad and whatnot and the way in which the box set kind of gained prominence in the early 2000s. The way we consume content. Yeah. Is that, does that have a lot to answer for here? Shit, yeah. Yep. And it's exactly the point I made before, that, that not only do the audiences demand things quicker, we demand things that are connected. Yes. And does that play into this whole thing where, you know, we've seen Lord of Miller get kicked off Han Solo. We've seen Edgar Wright get kicked off Ant-Man. We're seeing this basically, if you rock the boat or you don't fit into the company vision, is it like a director coming on to Breaking Bad and saying, yeah, I get that this is your house style, but we want to try something radically different. So are we sort of seeing more and more of these franchises are kind of going into this sort of more based on TV direction? And is that why, which is leading to my next point, is that why we've stopped expecting blockbusters to be great films? I'd have said, I'd have sort of supported that, hmm. but the fact that Taika Waititi's doing Thor 3 kind of throws a spanner in the works a little bit. But we haven't seen it yet. That's so. true. I mean, it but, see, be- but, you, but we, we haven't heard. So the whole thing with Inga Roberts, there were rumblings early that he was going to be kicked off Ant-Man. Yeah. Whereas Taika Waititi, it sounds like he's like, been able to do now again. It'll it'll be again. We haven't seen it, but yep. speaking purely from the trailers, the way he's supporting it on Twitter. When the first trailer came out, he just put that tweet up, being like, "Here's my new indie film for coming out later this year." <laughs> but um, is there an argument to be made that Taika Waititi's style fit more within what it fits Thor? It does. Yeah. It's a little bit off center and it it's a bit fits, wacky, and it, it fits him. It fits Thor a bit. It probably fits Guardians more. Yeah. And th- then here's here's the question though: Does it fit Thor because he's good for Guardians, and that the Guardians' gateway into the franchise is through Thor? Yep. So that again, works. he's actually a perfect choice. Yep. So the thing about Taika Waititi is that while he's doing his own thing, he still works for what they're doing. Whereas 
they wanted a very they wanted Ant Man to set up Hydra to set him up for Civil War, whereas Edgar Wright just wanted to make a cool Ant Man film. And I mean, yep. look, there's also something to be said for the fact that someone like Joss Whedon, who essentially created the Marvel House style, I mean, well, not not created it because really that was John Favreau, but perfected the Marvel House style. In event, even yeah. he sort of you know got so fed up with Age he of got Ultron burnt out because by it. there were so many things that they were like, you need to do this and this and this and this, and he was like, I, I'm just trying to tell a story. Was it after Ultron or after the first Avengers he decided to do much ado about nothing? After the first one, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's because he was like, oh, I, I, it killed me, so I needed to just do a little little indie film of my own in my backyard yeah. for a weekend. He, he got completely burnt out by Ultron. And you can kind of see it. Yeah. That film's just it has the garbage. whiff of studio interference. But do you know what do you know what else though? Just this is this is something while you're talking, Gabe, about, you know, the expectation that you need to have seen everything in the franchise. So I watched Age of Ultron and then I went back and started watching Agents of Shield. Now there are things in Age of Ultron that I'm like, what is that? Who's that guy? Why are they in Russia? This makes no sense. Or not Russia, whatever made up country they're in. Yeah. And then you watch Agents of Shield and in like season two, you get a beat where that Baron guy with the eye patch is like a main villain in Agents of Shield, and his whole kind of what he's up to makes sense there. And then all of a sudden, Age of Ultron makes more sense, and you're like, the weak plot points are fixed in other content, which is a really cool idea. However, you still need to be able to appeal to to just Bill coming in to watch it, which weirdly. Mm. Batman versus Superman does allow someone to come in having not watched Man of Steel. Yeah, it really it, does because it because it, it rehashes everything you need to know. But also, who cares? Because it's still a shit film. It's still a shit film. But just isn't make, it? Just make just focus fuse, on guys. making good films. One first. good film. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, then then there's this whole other other argument. I mean, like this. I think I think the the fact of it is that like this whole new model of like cinematic universes and you having to have done all your homework to understand what's going on and all of so that. So is it our fault, Gabe? Is that what you're saying? Well, maybe, but like, I, I think the fact of it is, you know, it's, well, I mean, we're living in essentially the age of the geek where all of your, all of your sort of childhood intellectual properties are being resurrected in this like huge big budget way. But I guess there's an argument to be made that like something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe allows for something like Civil War that can take all these disparate plot threads and bring them all together and do something big and huge that pays off a lot of stuff that's been set up through all these other things. But on the other hand, it's like, well, yeah, even Civil War has to be a piece of a bigger puzzle. So I guess the question here is, within this kind of infrastructure of universes and mega franchises and all of that, is there still room to, and this could be a really pretentious question, but is there still room to create actual art in there? Because something I've been thinking about with Star Wars is films like Jaws and the original Star Wars, they hit big and they captured imaginations because they were fresh and they were new and they hadn't really been seen before. Yep. Then it's like, okay, then you see, you know, like the um, Lord of Millen getting kicked off Star Wars for trying something new. And my original instinct is like, oh, well, you know, like, you know, fresh up the franchise, try something new. But then it's like, well, again, is the argument to be made that you're trying to give people what they enjoyed the first time around. So you kind of have to fit the house style, but then is the path to actually creating the next Star Wars that's going to really grab someone's attention and see someone's imagination to allow somebody to do something fresh. And can you do that within the framework? I don't know. There's so many questions that like, because this is so unprecedented. Do you know what makes me think that, that there are, there are still people trying to do it, whether successfully or not, but there are still, you've still every now and again, get clearly an attempt at a good old fashioned blockbuster. That's not part of a franchise. The film that's coming out, Valyrian or The Land of a Thousand Planets, yeah, or yeah. Yeah, that looks aggressive. balls to the wall absurd. It is a high budget, high concept, like sci-fi film that just looks insane, not part of an established universe. Mm. Could be an absolute disaster, but could still be pretty good. And yes, it's an adaptation of, of an of yeah, other yeah. work, but it's still Lord of the Rings, that's still a creation of a new work. But that is that is a director who is clearly a vision. They are well-made films. Like yep. it's it's when you think of franchises, name me a film franchise that's won an Academy Award recently. And not just for like Makeup and special effects, but has actually won an Academy Award. Oh, so we can't Define. talk about suicides. So you can't. So, so what? What I mean is, though, like Define so recently, because I mean, I suppose you have Heath Ledger winning. Heath Ledger's probably Knight, the last one. Yeah, yeah, but I don't even like you mentioned Lord of the Rings, and I just think it's too far back now because the landscapes changed so I mean, much. Fury Road got nominated for best. We, we could talk yeah, about, so, yeah. but but that, that that's that's a weird one because it's that's a very weird it's a very because because you could watch Fury Road having never seen a Mad Max film. Well, yep. I would argue Fury Road makes less sense in the context of the other Mad Max. Films. Yeah, if you've seen a Mad Max film, yeah, so you could you could literally watch that on its own. Gabe, if we go back to sort of talking about like the art and the one that I guess you always you can always put up is like, well, Chris Nolan made The Dark Knight, but even that is about 10 years ago. Like a filmmaker couldn't do that anymore though 
because of the cinematic universes. Like someone can't come in and make like a brilliant standalone sort of Batman story because they're just not allowed to anymore because it has to connect with Superman and Wonder Woman and all the other ones. Yeah. Christopher Nolan though, is the exception to that. He's still doing- he So look, Inception, Interstellar and then yeah, Dunkirk, yeah. Yeah. they're all standalone, huge budget, like tentpole picks, but he's been able to do that because he's built his because reputation. He's, yeah, exactly. he's got the he's clout to do that. Yeah. And, and, you know, some people- Online will be like, oh, when's he going to make smaller films like Memento again? That's like, well, at the moment, he's got to milk this as far as he can because there will come a time soon where Chris Nolan can't make these $150 no, million no. films. And here's the, here's the thing the I will say. Who, you know, and the amount of capital they earn for The Matrix. Mm. And then you have Speed Racer, bomb. You have Cloud Atlas, bomb. You have Jupiter Ascending. What the fuck was that about? But then you have V for Vendetta as well. They didn't they just that, wrote though. that. No, they wrote they that. They didn't even write it. They produced it. Really? Yeah. No, they, they did the screenplay. Are you 100% sure? I'm about 80% sure. I'm going to Google it while you guys have hashed oh, it out. I've got the laptop open right here. So oh, here we go. Quickly type it in. Is Sean O'Connor? Let's have a look. <laughs> I reckon he is and he's wrong. <laughs> I reckon uh, Shawnee boy's wrong. It was. You're right. You're yeah. actually right. Yeah. There you go. Did I say 80%? Can we retract that? I was 100% <laughs> sure. Can I also retract <laughs> my song in which I called you a cunt and said you were wrong? <laughs> nah, because I think, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, but they, they wrote and produced that. They didn't direct it. So the Aussie guy did James McTeague. Yes. Yeah, and, yes. But, but isn't it interesting? You, you say the point of, of Nolan is that he's yep. not going to be able to do those films anymore. Well, and I 100% disagree. He's probably not going to be able to go back and make a memento. Yes, he, he can. He could, Like, he could. But I think his next few releases, he's going to do big stories. No, that's what I mean. he's got the scope to do it. Yeah, but Tom, what I mean- And he'll keep doing at it. At a certain point. No, never. No, no, they will. Forever. Because all it's going to take is one bombed film and then he's yeah. going to have to go smaller. But how many bombed films did it take before people stopped giving the Wachowskis money? At a certain point, Chris Nolan is not going to have the opportunity to tell stories on a $150 million budget. Yeah, but it's going to be a while. Because think about it, unless Dunkirk is abysmal, yeah. but people will still, it, it'll make money. If people still keep going to see his films, it'll make like, money. It'll get nominated for awards because yeah. let's be honest. While while like like people often criticize him for heart and all that kind of stuff, he makes films that are visually stunning. Yep, I'm a big fan. Like like he's so he's in terms of just a, like directing style, his films are stunning. He does practical effects; they look insanely beautiful. And as a director, that's a tick. Like yes, yep. all right, maybe his characters you don't feel as much for them as you might. Interstellar, he kind of course corrected really hard. He yep. just kind of needs to hit the middle for Dunkirk, I think. Nolan cops it a lot for that in the heart department, but I, I find heart in most of his films. Yeah. yeah. The Prestige has that. Yeah, it's not in your face heart. The Prestige has some of the best understated heart, which it has that brilliant line I of, completely do you love me? It. Not today. Yep. Mate, I'm on no, board. Yeah, I love no. the Prestige. But see, yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating to look at sort of directors who earn this capital to kind of do what they want because- I mean, it's testament to the cultural impact of The Matrix that the Wachowskis could have not only three in a row critical flops, but financial flops as well. And they still got three big budget blockbusters in a row that didn't. Yeah. They've also got Sense8 on Netflix, which has now been, been canned. canned. Although they're coming back, back to the two hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. finale. Um, but it was, people loved it. It's it's also just, it's so weird with blockbusters because you go through these different trends, I guess, where there's different genres of blockbusters. In the 90s, it was Roland Emmerich making things like Independence Day and that sort of thing. And now we've been stuck in comic book films for, for how long? Like 2010, I want to say. Well, I mean, no, really, I comic before, book films man. have been pretty decent moneymakers since probably the first Spider-Man. Probably I reckon the first where First like, X-Men. Jeez. I mean, Blade, 2000, Blade isn't it? started it. X-Men. It's been about is 15 X-Men 99 years. or 2000? 2000, I think. Jeez. I reckon you could you could definitely say that for 10 years we've been- But they, they, they came along sporadically. Like they sporadically, weren't- but not that sporadically. I mean, if you no. look at like between- If you look at the early 2000s, I mean, we had the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. We had the original X-Men trilogy. We, we had, had Catwoman, Daredevil, Elektra, Hulk. Yeah. Like there were ones in there that weren't successful. But they were but still being made. And then, it, and then it dipped for a slight lull and then it came back with the Because the then you got Begins. Yeah. But yep. even before the MCU, you still had the Batman trilogy. That's what I mean. So, so had, what you have yeah. is once it started to dip and people were like, oh, these are crap. You then got Begins, which people went, oh, you can make a cool superhero film. Then you got Dark Knight yep. and people went, you can make a cool superhero film and Iron Man in the same year. Well, here's the counter argument, I guess, about like, you know, not being able to make art within this kind of universe framework is you just kind of look towards Fox and I yeah. guess, you know, art, art is subjective and all of that, but it's like still superhero different films. and fresh and personal and actually beholden to someone's vision is, you know, your Deadpools and your Logans. And even on the TV scale, your Legions. Still, uh, yeah, Legion is 
See, I think TV things that are fresh and different. You, you're true, but I still say that's still part of the superhero genre because I I want to raise a point. You talked about blockbuster films being of different things. There was a period in the '90s and also in the 2000s when a blockbuster film was a big budget purely because of the cast comedy. I'm talking Hangover, Hangover Two, Hangover Three. You're got things any, anything with Adam Sandler in it in the '90s when he was quite good. Yeah. <coughs> We still get the big tentpole summer, American summer comedy release, Anchorman, those kind of Talladega Nights. Do you count that as a blockbuster? Because I don't. See, I count, I count Hangover 2 and 3 as blockbusters. But if you're talking Adam Sandler, are you saying things like Happy Gilmore were blockbusters? Because no. to me, they're not. To me, a blockbuster would have been Independence Day. It would have been Godzilla. All right, now, like now fair. But are you willing to speed, I think, as a blockbuster? You're going to give me but Hangover? I would say... Hangover, it's a different kind of thing. I don't actually but think it's a blockbuster. Hang, hangover 2 and 3. I'm not saying the first one because the first one was first a sleeper was a bit hit. Of a sleeper, remember yeah. that yeah, nobody knew who nobody knew it was. And then the second and third one came out. They just upped the stakes and people went to them. Like yeah. they made heaps and Also, heaps I mean, then money. how do you count films like the Jump Street films, like Baywatch? I mean, that's another thing that maybe um, defines Comedy blockbuster stars because, you know, you put Definitely Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum in Jump, jump Streets. They, they're unquestionably blockbusters. Definitely star power. Like you look at Spielberg's big blockbusters – I'll take Jaws out for a second, but you look at like Jurassic Park, you look at um, – actually, I'm not going to do Spielberg. I'm just going to do big blockbusters. Yeah. Jurassic Park, you do Independence Day. Yeah. You do something like Terminator. Yeah. You've got Arnold Schwarzenegger who was like taking off at the time. You've, yeah, got, you've got anything with like Schwarzenegger, anything with Sylvester Stallone, stuff like back that. Back in those days. Well, Rocky's a blockbuster. Yeah. Maybe not the mm. first one, but maybe definitely the sequels to Rocky. That's that's and that's what I'm saying is that sometimes you can have a film that is not necessarily a blockbuster, but its sequels are. So Hangover, mm. not necessarily a blockbuster. Hangover two and three, blockbusters. Definitely. They're yep. put definitely. middle of summer. They're probably competing with like a like an Avengers or a or a Thor or a Captain America. These days, yes, it's a lot of those kind of films, but I, I reckon you can have blockbuster comedies, and that's purely star power rather than production votes. Bridesmaids made a shitload of money and was hugely popular. No, but see, for me, that's not a blockbuster until like when you look at it and go, oh, yeah, it made hundreds of millions of dollars, then it becomes – because prior to that, so no, I, I wouldn't have called I, a blockbuster. I go back. Yeah. Hangover 2 and 3. <laughs> yeah, okay, that works because they're sequels, but Bridesmaids fits in the Hangover discussion, the first Hangover. All right, well, here's, here's one just delayed blockbusterification. Yeah, call here's it like one. a subgenre here's, here's of one. blockbusters. Here's one. Yeah. Fast and the Furious is is delayed blockbusterification. <laughs> the first movie is a big action film, yeah? But it, it's like good. Second film's like dumb and the fun. First movie is a B movie. Yeah. yeah. Like it was it was a B movie. Third film came out, okay. Then they just didn't do anything for ages and now all of a sudden they are one of the most like successful franchises in film. Mm-hmm. So is is that a case again of maybe the first couple of films not necessarily being blockbusters per se? Yeah. And then by the time they start again getting stars in, they get the rock in. Yep. They're now you know. obviously now they're blockbusters, but yeah, early on, no. The first three or four weren't. Is the Wolf of Wall Street a blockbuster? No. It's not. I know it's got a huge budget, but to me like Huge budget, Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese. I, I that still, ticks that ticks three of the boxes. Yeah, no, and it's I, I go more towards an action film. Well that no, that's just genre though. Action film is just a genre. Because Hangover Two and Shrek Three are blockbuster films. Yeah. I still wouldn't put Wolf of Wall Street in the blockbuster conversation. I don't know if I would. It's an Oscar Oscar bait drama. But the fact that it costs $100 million is because Scorsese makes these elaborate films with huge stars. All right. So then- it's not high concept. Is the original- Blockbuster, I think, needs- Like, even The Hangover is high concept. No, it's essentially a biopic. It's not really So so does that mean, though, the original blockbuster is the movie musical, right? They made shitloads of monies. Studios would build their entire- film release schedule around their big movie musical they were doing. They used to haggle and fight over stars, as we know. So you had like guys like MGM who did Singing in the Rain. They were huge. The budgets. So they're the, the movie musicals. But these days, we probably would be like, Singing in the Rain, blockbuster? Nah. But in its day, Singing in the Rain would have absolutely been a blockbuster. I guess, but I still think the Jaws is like the first blockbuster. Well, it, it is it is because it had the first release schedule. But I think I'm going to say the original movie musical was the first blockbuster because it was big budget, high concept. And then we had the Western after that. And then you had and the then, Western after and that. Then, I mean, the argument is that after the Western came, you know, your new Hollywood, you know, your film school brats, your um, your Coppolas, your Spielbergs, yeah. your whatever. Which is Jaws. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think blockbusters, yeah, they can be defined by the genre. I think 80s and 90s, they're action. Now it's comic books. The 90s, it was a lot of stuff. It was like um, Jim Cameron doing True Lies, 
again, Independence Day, speed, stuff well, like that. Well, then maybe the then, arguments be made. Well, then, then you've just disproved your argument because you've said that a blockbuster is, has to be an action film, but you've just said the genre is changing. Well, it does, but I don't- Because you can also have horror blockbusters. No, but you don't. Uh, what do you have? What do we have? Anything after Saw 1? They're not blockbusters, Tom. They're tentpole releases. I still don't- People yeah, would mark their calendar to get a Saw film. Blockbuster I, I is like did. a Jim Cameron um, film. Yeah, sure, but but you can still. I reckon Look, there I are think, horror blockbusters. There are yeah. most horror films are what low budget. Halloween, yeah, but they're low down. budget. Yeah, okay, so but that, high concept, but high concept. Like how the Hangover big, was low budget, huge release. Even the sequels would have been low budget. Like huge, huge release. release, people go to them. Lasting like, people, iconic. There you go. Blockbusters. Yeah, on top of that, are iconic in the 80s. Yeah, but iconic like, is something. Yeah, yeah. Iconic is something that comes after a release. Yeah, so does so does. So the, it's not like we're developing a blockbuster film because they don't know it yet. It's such a small, low budget thing, and then they years from now you, you know, go, no, oh, that's an iconic. But that's film. But, Jaws, but so I'm saying Jaws. They release. didn't know they were making a blockbuster film when they made Jaws. Yeah, they no, didn't but know that till after. The term blockbuster film didn't exist before Jaws. Well, no, but I'm just saying that's just because we've. Well, can we a label, like, mate. Let's, You're getting into semantics here, and I disagree. Let's make the argument stupid here for a second. Yeti slippers. <laughs> like, because here's something I think Tom's gotten onto talking about the movie musical and then the Western and then New, New Hollywood. Maybe Jaws wasn't necessarily the first blockbuster, but it did perfect what a blockbuster is, which is yeah, okay. a high concept it. tentpole rolled out all around the world at the same time, capitalizing on a lucrative release. But before that, I mean, yeah, like, how do you define huge Hollywood movie musicals if not as a blockbuster? How do you define. The big, huge the Westerns. money that went into them is insane. Oh, so it's you know maybe like they were blockbusters in development. I mean, we do have to remember that film isn't uh, isn't an ancient medium. It's been around for really just over a hundred years now. Charlie Chaplin um, would have been a blockbuster star in his day. Yeah, Sean's, before we really knew what Sean's they were. Buying that. <laughs> um, so yeah, my, my argument is, Sean, that yeah. Jaws gives us, as you said. The clearest idea is a reference point, but that's yep. only the reference point we've given it. There have been films that would be blockbusters of their day. Yeah. And I think making Jaws a blockbuster kind of can narrow the definition of blockbuster. And Jaws I'm- was unquestionably a watershed moment for cinema because it sort of was like, all right, cool, now we make big money on these like high concept releases, release all at the same time, roll it out, all of that. And now it's developed to what we have today, which is, you know, franchises, franchises and cinematic universe and things like that. To rebut your point, I just have to keep doing this. I don't remember what my point was. No, just about how Oscar bait then big budget Oscar bait. Oh, yeah, sure. Yep. Titanic was an Oscar bait, mate. You, you sure? Guarantee you. They, 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 they make that film and go, we're telling it a true story. It's large scale, but it wasn't. Re- was it released in like summer or was it? I feel like it was released like towards awards season. The release season. probably I changed like- because of how over budget and how, you know. Titanic also came out of the time before Oscar bait was such an ubiquitous thing. Because now it's all like, you know, so again, serious that, dramas about issues. Titanic came out at probably the end point of the time when the Oscars were still willing to actually... I mean, but then again, then yeah. you get into the whole thing. It's like, you know, do you count Science Lambs a blockbuster? I mean, Star Wars was nominated for the Oscars in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I'd say Titanic is Titanic's a blockbuster. not Oscar bait. Titanic's definitely, definitely a blockbuster. A blockbuster. But yeah. in, the same, in the same way that Wolf of Wall Street No, it's not because, and again, it's an action film. It's an epic scale It's a film. love story, Sean. It's, an ep- it's a love story. And a disaster film. It's but an it's epic that, scale. So is Wolf of Wall Street. It's maybe epic in its ambitions by the filmmaker, but it's a biopic about a guy. I do definitely argue. I don't agree that Wolf of Wall Street is a blockbuster. I don't think I do either. I just want to argue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, fair enough. But, um, but yeah, okay, okay. So I guess coming to where we are now, I guess the evolution of blockbuster, we've gone from, you know, your Jaws and your Star Wars and your kind of like high concept studio risks to this point where we're essentially living in the age of the franchise universe. And then you have things like Fox where it's like, we're not, we don't really give a shit about continuity. We just let you kind of throw out whatever and then you but get a load. still within them, a superhero a, genre. Still within the superhero genre, but it does prove that there is scope to make art and different things within that. So I guess coming to this point where we are now, where we're perpetually wondering at what moments the... I guess the superhero franchise bubble is going to burst. Where do we go from here? Because in the last few months alone, we've had films such as The Mummy, which was meant to be the start of a of another cinematic universe, which has flopped or, you know, not done as well as I expected. The original Mummy films um, are blockbusters. Yeah, yeah. The Pirates of the Caribbean 5 didn't do well at the box office, or I mean, it did well, but it basically underperformed. Pirates underperformed, The Mummy underperformed, Transformers, the new one underperformed, Despicable Me 3 apparently underperformed. We're seeing more and more of these films underperforming, is that to say that people are getting fed up of getting served the same stuff again and again and again, just repackaged? It's, it's hard to judge because that's Pirates 5, that's Transformers 5. What's Despicable Me up to? What is that? Three. Three. 
three. So the um, thing about so that's what I mean. Like so, pirates. No one was no one was wanting a pirates five. No one was screaming out for a Transformers five. The exception is, and you look at Wonder Woman. It's it's broken BVS's and Man of Steel's box office yeah. in less time. Yeah. So people aren't stopping. Like look at Guardians well, of the Galaxy two. It, Wonder Woman is good. Pirates five is not. Do you know what I mean? Maybe that's, that plays into but it maybe, as well. Well, that's part maybe, of it. Maybe, maybe the critical reception is now becoming relevant to these superhero films, whereas probably yeah, five they years used ago, to be called didn't. Critic Proof. And okay, oh, that's an idea. That's something I hadn't thought about. Okay, because it used <laughs> you to have be, this mad fucking gleam in your eye right now, and I'm terrified. It, well, I mean, it always used to be that these huge tentpole films, and they were always referred to in reviews and in articles and everything, as being Critic Proof. Is that it? Because the franchise and the tentpole has become the trend, does that mean we're getting to a point where they're no longer Critic Proof? Because there's just so many that we have to go for the ones that we're told are good. I would say so yes. people go and see Wonder Woman and not Pirates 5 because they hear Pirates 5 is shit, Wonder Woman's good, I've only got enough money to go and see one film this weekend, what am I going to go to? Again, though, that's hard to judge because they're performing, some of them are underperforming domestically in America, but they're still doing fine overseas. Like The Mummy has been garbage in America, but overseas it's doing fine. So that franchise is going to, the dark universe is going to kick on. Which would be really good, Sean. I can't yeah, wait. I'm really excited about that and can't <laughs> wait for it. But I don't know. So what is it about the American audience that's making them kind of be like fatigued with the bullshit, I guess? I, I don't really know. It, it could purely come down to release schedule. So it could be that as a – like, yes, we get blockbusters the same as everybody else. But so they might get Lego Batman and two other – and Baby Driver and like another film the same week that they get The Mummy, whereas we get The Mummy. Or we get Mummy and Pirates 5. And that's the only two we get, whereas they might get four or five options. And then there's the China factor, because wasn't it... Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, because I could I could totally be talking out my ass with this, but is it true that not that long ago, China was very selective about which it Hollywood blockbusters it let through? I don't have and the... it's only just kind of opened the doors more, so now you've got things like Iron Man 3 having like a Chinese subplot edited, edited in for the Chinese version. There are several co-productions and stuff like that, but I don't know the specific... Uh, figures, but it might be something like they'll take 30 US films a year. And that's yeah, it. Okay. So you get so your Iron Man 3s that are like, hey, yeah. pick us because we'll have this Chinese element to it. Or so, yeah. pick us because we've got Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Matt Damon, that kind of thing. Yeah, star for power. instance, and I, I mean, Richard Gere doesn't have that much star power anymore, but I just read an article or an interview with him yesterday where he was saying he has been cast in films and then it's had Chinese backing and they hate him over there because he's very vocal about China and Tibet and all that sort of thing. And they get him kicked off films and that sort of thing. So China have like this huge power now. So That's because fascinating. People want because yeah. the Chinese market is- That is fascinating. Like he's been heavily in pre-production on films and the director will call him up and said, like China have called me and said that I'll never be allowed to go home to my well, country again like, if I put you in my film. It's logical. Like you want to go and see a huge blockbuster. Like imagine, I know I know it's different because like it's a different economy, different film marketplace. Can we do that, that with Johnny you- Depp just in the Western civilization? <laughs> uh, sorry, we uh, we won't fund your film. Why? Because it's got a dickhead in it. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine a world in which we're, we're sitting here in Australia and the Australian government's like, oh, yeah, nah, so so you get 30 US films a year and everything else has to be Aussie content. So welcome the deluge of suburban misery porn. Can I just and- say, though, it would start off with a deluge of suburban misery porn and a lot of ochre crap. Eventually, oh, yeah. You would get some really good shit. Well, you'd have to eventually yeah, would, that's yeah. all people can go to. But you imagine how big those US films are going to hit? I mean, eventually you get fed up with the suburban misery porn. All you want to do is go and watch fucking Wonder Woman. Yeah. And so, you know, you get those films. Suicide so, so, yeah, I would kick Richard Gere off my film if China was, you know, <laughs> yeah. if I was vying for a Chinese audience. But imagine that. Imagine like He's got the once Tibetan a market month. corner, imagine, though. <laughs> imagine once a month you get a big American film here. Of course everyone's going to go watch Well, it. that's probably what it was. Like, yeah. actually, do you know what? That's exactly what it used to be. Mm. So is, is one of the issues that the blockbusters evolved weird because of saturation? And will we eventually, when the superhero bubble does burst because things are, are cyclical, what's going to be the next thing? Is it, will it be a war film, sci-fi? What's going to, will Westerns come back in? What is it? Who knows? It looks like, I mean, I know that horror has never been, you know, the dominant genre. Could be the movie musical just quietly. Maybe, but I mean, like, it does seem to. It does feel like we're sort of looking at like a bit original of a, movie musicals. Don't give me that. It look. does feel like we're looking at a bit of a horror renaissance lately because I mean, horror's heyday was the eighties. You know, it was your slasher films. It was your Freddies, your Jasons, your all of that. But now it's blockbusters, like, Gabe, Sean, anyway, Carney. Now it's like you know your Conjuring's, your Insidious's, your um things like the Babadook that do really well. Things oh, like Get Out, scary, and it kind of feels like horror's sort of make. I don't. I'm not. And again, I, I think horror is too unappealing to a certain market, <clears throat> Sean Carney and Tom Reed, yep. to actually, you know, be that dominant four-quadrant thing that everybody goes to see. Yeah, I don't but- want to say that it will never be the, the genre, but I don't think horror can be. Because it's, because yeah. it's specific. And look, the, the proof is in, like, how many people went and saw Rings? 
I, I went and saw it. No, no, what I mean is like in general, like it wasn't. How many people went to see it thinking this could be good? <laughs> well, yeah. I think the other thing with horror too is that they're generally low budget. But then, and, and they're but then, very creative, and that plays into it. And I don't think horror. I don't think you ever want to get to a point where you've got this slew of horror films that cost 150 but, okay. million dollars. So maybe maybe his argument to be made because if you look at the 80s, I would sort of argue that the action film didn't have a stranglehold on the marketplace the same it way was the superhero film split. does now. Because in the 80s, it was you know your romances and your action films and your horror films, and there were a lot of like mid-budget films, some of which blo- broke through and hit blockbuster status, yeah. and then would go on yeah. to make lots of sequels, like Nightmare on Elm Streets or whatever. And you're and Friday the 13th. Maybe that was a healthier film marketplace because I think so. more original stuff got made, whereas now it's like it's a superhero film or, I mean, and let's face it. Or like, an indie. Or an indie. Whereas Filmmakers like, complain that there aren't that many mid-budget then, films and anymore. And the, the ones that are exceptions, like your, like The Mummy, which ostensibly in theory is kind of like a horror film on a grand scale, but it's a isn't actually a horror budget. film. It's a big action film set in a big cinematic universe kind of taking all of the hallmarks. There were scary bits. There were there was a little scary bits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Coming from our expert scary opinions. <laughs> yeah. there, was some, there was definitely some bits where I was like, oi. But um, Sean's handy. I don't think that the 40 to $80 million film really exists anymore in Hollywood. There are exceptions, like your arrivals. Yeah, yeah, every now and again I think you'll get one, but predominantly you're getting your but 100 to 200 million. Yeah, yeah. Again, so while there are limitations on the genres that go for the big ones, in that mid-range budget you're looking at comedies, horror, and probably crime. Yep. They, yeah. They're going to hit that middle bit. But even like a lot of comedies these days, you look at the budget and it's like 100 million. Cause you know it's I mean? And because of the star power. Yeah. You know, you look at the, the Jumanji film that's coming out, the, the Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. You can't tell me that that film – like wasn't made for millions and millions of dollars because it has The Rock, Kevin Hart, and Jack Black starring in it. And yep. can I say I am so on board? Oh yeah. my, me too. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, am yeah. so Shit. excited for that. Sign me right up. Oh my god! Just the, Before, oh, I don't, so good. I don't have like much nostalgic connection to the original Jumanji. It's good. I saw that trailer and I was like. Oh shit! Just just the rock staring off in the distance, going, "Don't, don't cry, cry, don't, don't cry, cry, don't cry." cry. <laughs> Fuck, I'm so excited. Basically, um, I love the fact that you have these four big actors playing, all playing against type. Play, playing well, against no, type I don't think Kevin Hart is against type, but well, no, no, but as in having to play, having like, to play kids. other people. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see the rock play like a dweeby guy. Oh, I can't wait, but it's even man. like Kevin Hart, who normally is like the angry small man. He's an angry small man, big man. Yeah. Oh yeah, because that'd be great. Turn into an angry small man, man, and then you've got you've also got Jack Black playing a woman. (laughs) Which I I can't wait. I think it's going to be good. Sign me up. There you go. And that's blockbuster. Yeah, definitely. Would the original Jumanji be a blockbuster? Would we say? I think so. High budget. Robin Robin Williams. Williams. Yeah. Yeah. And like maybe it's moot to sort of say, oh, you know, what's gonna what's gonna be the next kind of superhero or the next Western or the next musical or whatever? Because I mean, I think if you go back to the late nineties, nobody would have anticipated that the superhero comic book film would go the way it went. Yeah. Because at the time they were kind of a joke. And then it was like slowly in the two thousands, they kind of crept it, up. It I think they crept up and became commercially successful through your Hulks and your well not your Hulks, but probably your Spider Mans and your X Men's. Yeah. And then they became legitimate avenues for story and actors to go, oh, I want it. like good good actors going, oh, and I want to do a superhero film because of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight yes. trilogy. So maybe, I mean, like, I, I don't know, I, I can definitely say that what I kind of hope happens is that the superhero bubble bursts and we get a sort of, not a repeat, but An like- An 80s a, a renaissance? New, yeah, like a new sort of new Hollywood era where you've got, you know, your film, I guess your film school brats kind of coming up, kind of making new stuff, doing like, you know, where, where there is room for a lot of like mid-budget but still high concept films like your Jaws's, like your Star Wars, like whatever, to get out there and get made. And yeah, a lot of them will bomb. I mean, like, it's surprising to me how many like high concept sci-fi films I hear about from the 80s with like, you know, well-known stars in them. It's like, I've just never heard about that before yeah. because it just bombs and gets forgotten because yeah. back then people were just making films and just like throwing shit at the wall and seeing what stuck. Do you know where you're probably going to get the mid-budget is you're absolutely right. It's going to be sci-fi. Sci-fi yeah, or horror. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's where you got to look. So if you're looking for where the next blockbusters or the next antithesis to the blockbuster are going to be in that mid-budget film, you're looking at the guys who do Arrival and things like that. Yeah. Dennis, Dennis Villeneuve. Yeah. yeah. He's doing, although, although he's doing Blade having Runner. said that, through the success of his other films, he has now landed Blade Runner, which, which is a budget. But I think, I think but it should be good. Blade Runner, the first one, isn't a blockbuster. Well, um, it's cult. It, it got a cult following. Yeah. It's also a little bit shit. 
But I mean, yeah, I, I think I think if I'm gonna if I'm gonna anticipate anything, it's the fact that all right, so the films vie for the Chinese release dates. They vie to be appealing to an international audience. So we get a lot of like big dumb blockbusters get made. People in America stop seeing them or see less of them, or you know, veer for the things that are a bit different because you know eventually people will be like, I just don't want to see another exactly the same Marvel film. Yeah, Gabe, what do you think it's going to take then, to burst the comic bubble? I just think Pe- the people more are going to wait for Phase Three to finish, right? Yeah, but Kevin. Fage, Feggy, Feggy. Yeah, Kev. MC Kev, um, Kev. MCU Kev, uh, has said that up to phase three, they're not, they're not thinking of another phase. They'll do other films that'll tie in together, but there's not like a phase plan. Okay, that's kind of... Which makes me think, will the bubble burst after phase three? Hopefully. Will people get to the end of Infinity War and go, I waited well, 10 yeah, I, years I mean, for this? I just wonder what the reason's going to be, because you can... I would think the reason the 90s action film bubble burst had a lot to do with 9-11, I would say just because people didn't want to watch that sort of people stuff like, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Roland Emmerich, you know, would watch that footage on the news and be I, like, mm, this is the kind of stuff I was making and now I feel like shit. I know James Cameron was in development on True Lies 2 and then after that happened he was like, we can't make fun of this anymore and that sort of thing. And it, that, So that changed and led to whatever the next but iteration then, was. But then see, that gave us Jason Bourne. Yeah, okay, yeah. And New Bond. Yeah. And eventually, and eventually we, we've, we've now finally been able to come back to Roland Emmerich and, and those guys making those kind of films, I think, now. Yeah. But, yeah, that's interesting. Are you, you're saying that terrorists killed Roland Emmerich's film career or did he have a hand in that? He probably <laughs> had a hand in that with that really great film he did about Shakespeare. Oh, what was that? Anonymous. Anonymous. Was like two or three years ago. It was long after 9-11. Yeah, it's a weird film, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to make a blockbuster. What, sit in Victoria, England? Yep. And it's about Will Shakespeare. Wasn't it well-reviewed? No, I don't no. think so. Oh, I think okay. it was pretty, pretty strongly savaged. No, because it was- <laughs> People were like, no, that's not the story. A lot of Shakespeare people got very angry. Yeah. I talk to them on a regular basis when we go to Blockbuster <laughs> yeah. along together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess like, I mean, you know, the, the evolution of the Blockbuster, it has been, I mean, it's fascinating in a lot of ways to kind of look at what's trending, how things sort of develop, how things evolve, I guess. But yeah, coming into it now, I think it is inevitable that sooner or later the superhero franchise universe bubble maybe I don't even think it'll burst. I think it'll just slowly peter off. The maybe Pixar deflate, bubbles a little bit. Pixar it, bubbles deflating. Yeah. So the superhero bubble should surely well, follow think, if they just keep churning out I think it's sequels like, you know, and the same stuff. Maybe the real maybe like the really good ones will kind of float to the top, but sooner or later I, I mean I don't think it's like gonna be an overnight thing where suddenly Homecoming comes out and no one goes and sees it. And then nobody goes and sees Ragnarok and nobody goes and sees this and this and this. I mean, there is also an audience investment in those films. So it's like once it'll be interesting to see what happens once those contracts are up. Once your crisis leaves, once, once, once your phase three gets fed up. Yeah. Once yeah. The, once your Infinity War part one and two come out and end. Because Danny Jr.'s contract's already pretty much Also, done. on top of that, I'm like, Infinity War is going to be fascinating because even though it's the com- it's definitely the culmination, at the same time, I mean, this is a huge money-making machine now. It will still have the responsibility to set up the next 8 million films while culminating all the previous ones. So it'll kind of be like a civil war where it's like, oh, this is a game changer, but not really because we still have to kind of keep the ball yeah, rolling for the next yeah. one. Marvel have a little bit of intelligence here, and I just think that they'll eventually figure out the landscape and probably have to make smaller budgeted films. Yeah. Every now and again, you'll have your big ones, but I think you'll cop hits. You'll cop shit ones like Doctor Strange or Thor 2 and stuff like that, and they'll become more aware of that, I think. So I, I think, think they'll have short, to if they want to survive. I think ultimately, I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm fascinated to see where it goes. Oh, wait, we're, we're in for a really interesting 20 years. <laughs> yes. Of yeah. film and blockbuster. If you live that long, Tom. Yes, because I fear another Rogue One might just break me. Hang and on. on that note. Hang on, hang on. Does that mean you're going to murder, murder me? Are you gonna- be, no, 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 dude, 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 don't relax. It'll be a murder-suicide. Yeah. Ah, oh, so I'll like, choke, will I choke on my own ambition? Oh, I'm, I'm dead now. Choke on something. Oh, quick shit. In Look, you know what? I thought, I thought it might be 20 years, but it's going to be 20 minutes. <laughs> so there we go. And on that note, I've been Gabe. I will be Handsome Tom for a little bit longer. <laughs> I've been Carney. And yeah, if you guys have any thoughts on the evolution of the blockbuster or what's good, what's bad, whether we're wrong, whether we're right, um, hit us up at moviemaintenance at sanspants.com. That's our email. Otherwise, on Twitter, we're at mmsanspants or I'm at gobergmoser. I'm at Awkward Treed. I'm at Sidekick of Dowie. And we will see you next time. Wolf of Wall Street is a blockbuster. Hey everyone, Gabe's new book, Boone Shepherd's American Adventure, is now available as an audiobook over at sanspantsradio.podkeep.com. So feel free to go check that out and help support Gabe in his future career as a voiceover artist slash audio Elvis impersonator. Right now, here's a sample of the first chapter of Boone Shepherd's American Adventure. 
Chapter 1. You know what I hate about 1884? Promethea asked. I rolled my eyes. I'd been trying to enjoy the view of the city, by myself, but I could not be so lucky. Everything? Everything, she exclaimed. Absolutely everything about this era is awful. How did anybody ever survive here? They didn't have you to put up with, I said, leaning on the barrier and looking out over the spread of buildings in the early morning. New York, a city still creating itself as people flocked here from other countries, determined to build something from the dust. If I squinted, I could pretend it was London in 1965. I blame you, she said. I really do. I don't want to wait 80 years to get home. You only have to wait 60, I said. Then I don't know what happens. You remember the laws of time travel. Two versions of yourself can't exist at the same time. Laws of time travel, Prometheus scoffed. I still can't believe that's a thing. Well, it is, I snapped, turning away. We'd had this same conversation roughly 700 times on the ship as we stowed away to America, and then again after arriving. For far too long now, I had been stuck with Promethea. We had spent some frantic weeks together in London, trying to find out who had taken the time machine, or when they had taken it to, while everyone around us celebrated Christmas and welcomed the new year. Eventually, the panic wore off, and I realised that every day I spent in London brought me closer to being caught and hanged. So we fled to America. You know what would help me take a stronger interest in the laws of time travel, Prometheus said? Having possession of a time machine. And we did have one of those, but... But you left it unguarded, and now we don't, I replied. So don't bother going on about it. It's your fault. (laughs) Of course, it's my fault for coming back for you, she grumbled. I wasn't going to take her bait. I turned and headed for the door that led back down to our makeshift home. As I made my way down the wrought iron stairs, Promethea trailed after me. Why did it have to be America, she said. Of all places. The people here are insufferable. Last country in the world I ever wanted to visit. I don't know, I think you fit right in. Hilarious, Shepard. How droll. I glanced back at her with a raised eyebrow. You've been spending too much time around Oscar. We reached the landing and I opened the wooden varnished door of the apartment. It was a luxurious place, full of plush couches, paintings, ornate rugs and bookshelves packed with hefty volumes. It was also clearly built for one person, as was made evident by the single bedroom to the side and the two hammocks that had been strung up in the small living area. Speaking of which, Prometheus strode over to the door and knocked loudly. Wild, you useless slob. Get up. I'm hungry. Peters, it is your turn to make breakfast, came the muffled reply. I did it yesterday. I did it yesterday, I muttered, climbing into my hammock and lying back. Yeah, Wild, Shepard did it, Prometheus said, which makes it your turn. The door burst open. I glanced over. Wearing a fluffy pink dressing gown, Oscar stood in the doorway, hands on hips. Is it not enough, he said. That you have invaded my privacy and turned an apartment designed for one into a can of sardines. Shepard, Wilde just called us sardines. Damn it, woman, that was patently a simile. Metaphor, I said, reaching behind my glasses to rub my tired eyes. Do not start, Shepard. I am the playwright here and I know what a simile is. I'll show you a simile if I don't get some breakfast, Prometheus said. Oh good, the dictionary is on the table, Peters. Time to prove you can read. I rolled over, putting my back to them and my eyes to the window. The view from here wasn't as interesting as on the roof, but it was better than watching the same argument that played out every morning I didn't make breakfast, and even some when I did. Most of the time I ended up doing it just to shut them both up. Shepard, back me up here, Prometheus said. It's Wilde's turn. I don't care, I said. It was too easy to imagine what a life here would be like if we never found a way home. Boone, do stop with the moping. It's becoming quite tedious, Oscar said. I rolled back to face them. I only just started moping, I snapped. And besides, I'm not moping. You just said you were moping, Promethea pointed out. Well, if I'm moping, it's because listening to the two of you endlessly argue makes me mope. Allow me to point out that I'm involved in the arguments and I managed to resist the temptation to mope, Oscar pointed out. Yeah, come on, Shepard, Promethea said. Be more like me and Wild. Wild and I, Oscar said. That's it. I slid from the hammock and made straight for the door. That is breaking point. I'm out. Oh good, are we leaving? Prometheus said, hurrying to join me. I spun to face her. I am going for a walk, I said. A long walk. If I don't come back, it's because I found the time machine and abandoned both of you here, which would be exactly what you deserve. Promethea inhaled sharply, and her eyes went wide with fear. We looked at each other for a moment. I'm sorry, I mumbled. Cabin fever. Promethea nodded and looked away. I met Oscar's gaze over her shoulder. He was frowning slightly and I knew what he wanted to say. We don't want to stay here any more than you want us to, I said, but we don't have much choice. We've got no money and nowhere else to go.
I know that, Oscar said. Perhaps it's time to think about getting jobs. Promethea turned to him. I have a job, she said. One I'll be returning to before long. You won't be returning anywhere if you spend your days sitting around my apartment moping, Oscar said. I don't mope, that's Shepherd's area. I pushed through the door and out into the hallway. Footsteps sounded from behind me as I made for the staircase at the end. Go away, Promethea, I said. Wiser words were never spoken. Oscar followed me, still wearing his dressing gown. Boone, we need to discuss this. I need fresh air. You need a plan. I never... Shepard, repeatedly stating you never have a plan is a terrible catchphrase. How do you know what a catchphrase is? Peters was cruel enough to inform me of the atrocities the future has committed against the English language, and you're changing the subject. We reached the stairs and I started down them. Oscar didn't stop. The fact is this. Sooner or later you will have to act. I know you have been through a lot, but it has been months since your brother died. Months of stagnation. Not having a plan isn't working for you. We reached the landing. I walked out to the bustling streets hoping that the indignity of wearing that dressing gown in public would make Oscar turn back. It did not. You have options, Boone. You simply have to look for them. You could... What? I came to a halt and faced Oscar. Go back to England and clear my name? They would hang me before I could convince anyone of anything. I brought shame and scandal to Huxley's paper, so he won't help me. Even if I had the first idea of where the time machine is, I have no way of knowing when it is. So looking for it isn't a smart option. Promethea and I searched Reculius's lab top to bottom after he died so we know there's no other portal there. I can't get another job as a journalist. I'm too well-known in those circles. And I'm not qualified to do anything else. Where would that leave Promethea anyway? Oscar, I'm not just sitting around brooding. I've thought of everything. For a moment, Oscar stared at me. Then he closed his eyes and sighed. The fact remains, Boone, I have my own life and my own problems. You are my friend, and I care for you a tremendous amount. But I simply cannot keep providing for you. You are putting me at risk every second you remain. Not to mention the toll Peters has already taken on my sanity. I looked away. Oscar was right, of course. Even coming to him for sanctuary, he'd been asking too much. And he would have been well within his rights to turn us away. I was grateful he hadn't. And now, we had long overstayed our welcome. But we had no other option. Yet. Let me think about it, I said. But one way or another will be gone within the week. I'll come up with something. It's a curious and unpleasant thing, not knowing what to do. And as Oscar departed to enjoy a solitary breakfast surrounded by all the attention his dressing gown would earn him, the weight of my situation felt heavier than ever. Sometimes company can distract you, while standing alone on a crowded street in an unfamiliar city can make it much clearer just how dire things are. I missed home. I missed the English countryside and the strange stories I found there. I missed lying under the stars, looking up into their infinite expanse and letting my mind wander. I miss solving murder mysteries and fighting sinister train conductors and saving mythical creatures and uncovering the truth about haunted houses. All of that, as terrifying and stressful as it could be, was home. Home was the open sky in my motorbike. Home was freedom. And while I could leave New York City and go pretty much anywhere in this country, that wasn't what I wanted. What I wanted was to be back where I belonged, away from my horrible past. Even just having my motorbike would be a comfort. One small taste of the life I wanted to run back to. But motorbikes didn't exist in 1884, where Boone Shepherd was a wanted murderer, and the fields of England were a place he could never return to. And without a bike or a case to solve, I didn't feel much like Boone Shepherd at all. Wandering the streets of New York, hands in pockets and eyes downcast, I let that particular misery wash over me. I refused to consider a future here, which meant that as far as I could see, there was no future. And that wasn't a thought I wanted to dwell on, which left one imperfect solution. We needed to act. I found Promethea that afternoon when I returned to the apartment, feet up on the couch, reading through a pile of papers. You know, I I can't figure out why Oscar Wilde is so famous back home, she said. This story is rubbish. It's almost as bad as your version of events. Leave him alone, it's a draft, I said. We need to get thinking. I told Oscar we'd move out within a week. You did what? She dropped the papers, all attention now on me. I don't want to move. I'm aware of that. I said, but we've intruded long enough. We need to figure out a course of action. Like what? She said. Don't you think if we had a course of action, we would have taken it by now? Maybe, maybe not, I said, but we can't stay here. I beg to differ. I don't care what you beg. We're leaving and that's it. If we have to live on the streets, we will. You will, she snapped. I'm not moving. Then I'll call the police and tell them you're a burglar with especially bad manners. Fine, 
She flew to her feet. I'll tell them you're England's most wanted murderer. I froze. For a moment, we stared each other down. She looked away. Sorry, she mumbled. I didn't mean that. I shook my head. I had nothing else to say. But I stand by the other thing, she said. We don't have anywhere to go, Boone. And unless an opportunity knocks on this door, there was a knock at the door. Frowning, Promethea and I glanced at it. Then at each other, then back at the door. Oscar usually preferred to entertain friends elsewhere. Nobody knew we were here. Slowly, heart racing, I approached the door. Promethea followed, looking as wary as I felt. I hesitated, then turned the handle and pulled open the door. A wide-eyed, red-haired girl of about 15 stood there, wrapped in a long coat and hugging herself. Upon seeing me, her face broke into an expression of pure relief. Boone Shepherd, she said in a breathless Texan accent. Howdy, and thank heavens, you're the only one who can help. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear the rest of the story, part one is available for free over on the Boone Shepherd RSS feed. Just search for Boone Shepherd on iTunes, or you can purchase the complete audiobook over at sanspantsradio.podkeep.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.